Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. My next guest is Sonia Callen. She is a successful orthodontist turned recovery coach on a mission to create a community of support. After selling her thriving multi-location practice in 2016, Sonia found solace in sobriety in 2017. Since then, she has been dedicated her life to making a difference through social impact investing and volunteering with the incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, and victims of sex trafficking. Now, Sonia aims to empower others on their recovery journey by leveraging the power of her peer support services through Everbloom, a platform that provides small group recovery meetings based on shared struggles. However, behind Sonia's achievements lies a story of personal trials. Battling cultural and family pressure as an Indian woman, her addiction and recovery journey were deeply affected. Despite facing a recent divorce after 18 years of marriage that challenged her sobriety, Sonia emerged with strength and grace. Her transformation from a life solely focused on external success to a project she is deeply passionate about has fueled her drive to create a meaningful impact. Join us as we explore Sonia's incredible story of recovery, cultural resilience, and the power of peer support. Take a listen. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. So my first, you know, I'm just really curious, you know, um, we got to talk a little bit before. So share a little bit about your cultural upbringing and how it relates to your experience with addiction. Yeah. So my parents um, are Indian immigrants and they moved to Canada in the 60s, um, which was not a really great time to express your identity or culture. And so I think they they got the idea that it would be really good to assimilate as much as possible. And so by doing that, you know, the kids were assimilated. So my brother and I were super assimilated. Um, we, We ate Indian food a little bit. They spoke Punjabi at home. But other than that, like I had no real understanding of my culture. And so, you know, I knew I was different when I was at an all white school, but I didn't really know why. I just knew that I was physically darker. And so um, and I saw a lot of drinking growing up. And so men drank super heavily and they got together every weekend. And like a drink for Indian people is like a tumbler full of whiskey like that's like a drink so it's like when they say I had a drink they're like talking about like five American drinks (laughs) in terms of like so I saw a lot of of odd behavior that I think I didn't really understand probably until I got older um and it really kind of brought up the idea I think in my head of what a low-functioning alcoholic was and how that is that I I mean I knew that is not what I wanted to be Mm -hmm. No one really, there was not a lot of criticism of the behavior unless it led to like, you know, if my uncle ended up, you know, with a DUI or got into an argument and, you know, ended up in jail. And so those were the major consequences. Um, But other than that, like, we didn't really talk, my parents didn't really talk about it. It's like, they wouldn't want to talk about what happened last night where that guy was peeing with the door open. But no, we didn't talk about it. Wow. So... I mean, knowing that there were no discussions, what were, how did that like impact your own lead to your addiction? I mean, I think that like any 
information I had about like drugs and alcohol, I sort of figured out on my own. There was not a lot of conversation about it. Um, you know, I think that alcohol is not considered problematic in my culture. I think that if I showed up with like heroin or cocaine, they would probably be like, oh, this is a problem. This is like a Western issue. But Alcohol just was never really on their radar as something that could be a problem. And honestly, then probably not on my radar as something that could be a problem for many, many years. And so how did it look? How did addiction happen? Walk me through a little bit of what addiction looked like for you. Yeah. So I think, you know, I obviously now know that I had some mental health issues. And so I had really severe anxiety and depression. And that was another thing you never talked about. That's taboo, isn't it? That is taboo. And so unless it, again, it has to be so extreme for it to be considered an issue. And so, you know, the first time I drank, I was probably 14 or 15. And it was amazing. Like all the anxiety melted away. And I was like, this is it. This is what's been missing for me. I'm told I'm a totally normal person when I drink. Uh, I don't have anxiety. I'm not sweating all time. Um, And so, yeah, I think I just carried on just self-medicating. And I think like a lot of people, it just got worse and worse and worse. And I think the more experience I got kind of like handling my liquor, the more I could drink without major consequences. And I knew just to avoid those few things, like don't get a DUI, don't get incarcerated Mm -hmm. and don't have any like physical damage to your body. And keep doing well in school and no one was going to give me a problem. And so that's what I did for a really long time. So because you were, so, I mean, we talked about the low functioning alcoholic. Were you, do you consider yourself at that time high functioning? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, is there such a thing? I guess if high functioning is considered like professionally successful, um, you know, during like active addiction, I like graduated multiple times from different programs. I started a business. I got married. I bought a house. Yeah. And I sold my business. Like I scaled the business. And so I think that is high functioning. And I think that that there are so many people like that, that don't, you can kind of convince yourself you don't have a problem if you're functioning at such a high level. So how did that culturally impact you? I mean, because was success, there's stereotypes but also in your life, Sonia, what what were the pressures like for you? Do you think that anxiety and depression kind of came about, or do you think some of the origins came from pressure? What about that? Yeah, yeah I think that it's hard because it started so early sure. to really know like what the like impetus was. But I think that I think I was predisposed. Now that I look back at my family history, to have depression, to have anxiety, to have addiction. And then I think if you kind of throw in that additional pressure and kind of constant criticism, which is kind of how Indian parents show you they love you, is just to criticize you, to criticize it out of you, right? Mm-hmm. Like to make you better. And so, yeah, I think that I'm just one of those people that my response to that was like extreme anxiety. And so I wasn't, you know, there are people that react to that criticism and are like, well, I'll show you I'm better than, and I'm not that. I'm not that person. I'm the person that's like, oh my God, I'm such a terrible, like how, oh my God. And so, yeah. And then career-wise, I internalized it. Yeah. I didn't really talk back that much about it. I didn't say, well, no, I'm not, you know, 
I just kind of took it. And, um, and then I think probably at some point I made a decision, like, I'm just going to do what they will be proud of, what they want me to do. And the options were, you know, be a pharmacist, be a dentist or be a doctor. Um, and then when it got time to make the decision, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't think I like blood. And then it was like, I was, I don't want to stand on my feet every day as a dentist and I mean, as a pharmacist. So I became a dentist. Wow. And, and so, and you were successful. Not only were you a dentist, you had a specialty. Yeah. Yeah. I was an orthodontist. So I I did a residency in orthodontics and then super successful um, in practice too. Yeah. Were you drinking at that time? Yeah. Yep. Whole time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I still haven't totally gotten to the root of it, but the better the business did, the more depressed I became and the more I was drinking. And so I'm not sure if it was because I knew deep down this wasn't what I wanted to do. I don't know if it was because the pressure was, you know, too much. But mm-hmm. I, by the time we sold the business, it was a huge business. By the time we sold, I was like massively depressed. Like I was borderline like suicidal. And so, and I was drinking and I was hungover all the time. And you were very successful, though, on paper. Very successful on paper, successful marriage. Like, yeah, yeah. So that's everything that your family wanted you to be. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And how was that relationship during that time as your success became more and more and your depression also increased? But knowing that you can be a chameleon, you had to kind of, it sounds like you knew yeah. how to hide it in some ways. So what was that relationship like with your family? Yeah, so I don't I didn't really let them in that much. I think it was hard to hide. Um, when I did go home, which is pretty infrequently, I don't think I I didn't look well. Like I was like really thin. I was drinking super heavily. Um, but I think that so, you know, I built my business in like my early 30s to my late 30s. And that is normally when, you know, Indian people or, you know, anyone has kids. And between how much I was working and, and probably to some extent how much I was drinking, that time period just passed by. And all of a sudden I was like 38, 39, selling this business and in no position to have kids at that point. Needed to get sober, needed to like seek some help for my mental health. So that went on the back burner. And that I think was so embarrassing for them um, that I didn't have kids. And so just a like, I, it was like, well, this is not high functioning. You don't have kids like that. And I was like, but I, but I made this huge business and they're like, doesn't matter if you don't have. So it was very like, I, I kind of went too far with the like business and success part in that way. And I mean, I didn't realize that what they wanted to was like, I had to be perfect in all these different ways. Oh my goodness. And so not having kids was, yeah, was a sign that I was not well also to them. That was a sign something had, was wrong with me. And so how did you manage that? Yeah, I, I just drank at it. Like I drank through, I drank because I started drinking so early. I drank for every emotion. And so I drank when I was happy. I drank when I was sad. I drank when I was embarrassed or stressed. And so, you know, I just... I just, and then I would work harder, right? I would just focus more on the business, mm-hmm. focus more. And so I just kind of, if anything, I would avoid those types of conversations um, with them. And so, but I think, yeah, deep down, I really questioned myself and was like, what, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Like, what am I, I don't know what to do. And 
by the time I was like 40 and healthy, I was like, I don't, you know, that just the time passes, right? Where you're like that time where you would consider like a life change like that. And then you're like, no, I kind of like my life. I'm good. So, yeah. Right. So before that, I mean, you being from a traditional Indian family, was your husband chosen for you or did you get to choose? No, I I chose uh, my husband and my husband was Jewish and I had considered actually converting for a time. And that was my parents were like, absolutely not. And so I, like I didn't convert. Um, I kind of like acquiesced um, to them and thought, OK, I'm not going to you know do that if it's that offensive to them for me to convert. And so, um, yeah, so I chose and they were not thrilled um i think that because i was like 30 by the time i got married they accepted it because you know 30 we're already like tipping over that edge for indian people so all right at least you found another orthodontist nice guy seems like a nice guy um and so when that marriage fell apart um after 18 years it was like i told you so I told you so because, you know, yeah, you dated for five years, but this is what you people, right? Like this culture wow. teaches you um, that you date and you get to know somebody. And then why, why are your marriages still falling apart? Why are marriages still falling apart? We should have picked the guy. And now you're too old and you're divorced. So we can't pick anyone for you. You'll be alone forever. Oh my God. So it's so extreme. And did you get any support before I ask you kind of the impetus of shifting towards recovery and sobriety? Like what kind of supports did you have throughout this? I mean, it sounds like this was kind of a long road by yourself. Yeah. Sobriety was a long, lonely road. And so I did not, my, it's interesting. I think we do this a lot. I picked um, a, a spouse that was very much like my parents, that was very like tough love, very critical, also didn't believe in kind of like addiction. It was more like a weakness, right? That you could work harder to, you know, get through. And so I really never used the word sobriety for the first several years or recovery. I just was like, I think I'm not going to drink anymore. And inside I was like, white knuckling, freaking out, um, super jittery, like the first six months, year, super uncomfortable in social situations for even longer than that. And so I think it came to a point where actually it's really interesting. What happened was uh, my brother, who was a recovering alcoholic, relapsed. And I had been sober about two-ish, two and a half years. And that he had really been a great support for me. And so, and my parents also didn't think he had a problem. And so when he relapsed, um, I needed support. And so I thought I need to figure something out in terms of like sober support system. So um, I like went to a couple of AA meetings. I went to some online meetings. Mm -hmm. um, I just tested things out, but couldn't really find something that really fit. So before all of that, like, what were some of the consequences? Like some people talk about rock bottom. We know that's not a scientific term, but it's a real thing yeah. where people kind of lose almost everything. What was your quote unquote rock bottom or what was the impetus and consequences that kind of led you there to, to recovery? Yeah, my rock bottom was just getting like sicker and sicker by the day, like waking up feeling worse and worse and, um, 
did not really know where it would go. Like I was, and then I had sort of started to get help with my mental health. So then I was combining med- medication with alcohol and, and things were getting a little scarier, like a little scarier at night. Like I would take something at night and then I would kind of be up in the middle of the night, like wandering around, like kind of like sleepwalking sort of. And, uh, and I just kind of knew, like I, I just sort of knew that that if this went on, I wouldn't ever become the person I wanted to be. I was starting to really hate who I was. Like I had no interests. Um, I had no hobbies. I, I didn't even know who I was. Like I didn't, all I knew was sort of this, like I was super successful at business and I can do, you know, I can buy a nice house and I can buy nice furniture to go in it. But but I, there is nothing else. There was nothing else to me. I didn't have any other, like there was not a lot of substance. I think it was, I was just drinking it away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with all of this, did you ever get arrested or any of those things, which some people have to, to stop? But Yeah, no, I didn't, which interesting is I think also that's part of being super high functioning is that you know never to get into a car. Like, you know to take an Uber. You kind of are, you've kind of made your life so that you can't get in trouble. And so even like, let's say I would do drugs. Like, I was never buying the drugs, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there was always like five different people between me and any drug. And so I think that that that's sort of a privilege too, right? That, That you sort of, yeah, you kind of like insulate yourself so that you can just kind of keep going and no one's going to say anything. And so, yeah, I think that's sort of how, yeah, that's why there was no real like discernible rock bottom from the outside. And kind of a blessing in disguise, possibly from a cultural standpoint, other women in your community or in your circle, were you close to anyone at that point? that you, anyone said, hey, you know, Sonia, you need something, you need some help? Or was that just kind of you figuring out instinctively that you're going to die if nothing changes? Yes, it was me. And it was so internal. Like, it would be like, I would like feel something like my leg would go numb and I would freak out. Like, I would be like, what's going on? Or like, my vision would be like spotty. And I knew, like, I knew deep down, like, I didn't know if it was a direct you know, result of what I had drank. But like, I knew that this is what my body was sort of falling apart. And so uh-huh. no one ever said anything. I mean, I would say if anything, interestingly, my parents noticed I drank a lot because women don't really drink a lot in Indian culture. And so whereas my brother drank volumetrically like a ton more, um, just me having a few glasses of wine I mean, they didn't even know what would be like hidden in my like bedroom in my bag. And um, they were like, oh, she drinks a lot kind of thing. But never, no one ever stepped in and said, I think you have a problem. My husband didn't. Yeah. Because at that point, I mean, there are cultural values and expectations as you've been talking about. So as you were kind of figuring out what kind of program perhaps you wanted, what kind of things did you find and how did that shift in your values around recovery? Yeah, so I think slowly, you know, as I was looking for a pro- 
Instagram, I started writing about my recovery a little bit, like writing some like nonfiction essays um, about like a funny, not a, I mean, but like, like a story, like uh, this happened one time and this is how it related to my recovery. And, um, and then I, you know, I was just kind of exploring stuff after the sale of the business. So I took a photography certificate and I made images about my recovery, but I was still like well hidden, right? Like, so the images, uh, to the outside person, they could be about my brother or they could be about any, someone I knew in recovery. Um, so I was still sort of hiding myself and I started to feel like I need, I needed a lot more out of my life. And so I started volunteering, um, for a few different nonprofits and was like always trying to pick something where my addiction like would be of some value, like my recovery would be of some value. And so I, started volunteering with a program that teaches entrepreneurship in prisons. And so that was like right up my alley because I was like, I I know how to run a business. And so I would talk about my addiction, like to an actual, actual people. Like I would say, look, if I can, I can get over it. You can get over um, your addiction. And so, yeah, that really started to just change my sort of like motivation. The motivation had always been like external success. And so um, it became really, really important over time that I connected with other people um, in addiction. And and the more years I had, the more I wanted to help people because it had just been such a tough time. Like it was so tough. And I thought it was so tough for me. And I have, you know, I do, I just, I had stable life and it was still so hard. And I couldn't even imagine people that didn't have that stability, how hard it would be to get sober and to find that motivation. Especially folks incarcerated of people of color, I would imagine as well. Yeah, that was a big reason I wanted to go because I wanted them. And even though I'm Indian, like I think I passed for a few different, Mm -hmm. um, you know, ethnicities. And so it's helpful for people to see someone that looks like them and say like, okay, like it's not just like, you know, someone who was like, because I, I was living in New York at the time, a lot of the volunteers were from Connecticut. So it was like, I wasn't just some white girl from Connecticut right, that, right. um, yeah, I was someone I think a little closer to, to what they could relate to. Which I'm sure is extremely profound in what you've learned. Um, amongst all of that, when, what have you found surprising in your road on recovery and, and sobriety? I think that I would say it's surprising and disappointing is that like they're the pan Asian like representation in recovery is almost nothing. And so I have I have no Asian friends in recovery. I have no Asian clients in recovery. Um, and I don't even have any like Asian um, peers, like other recovery coaches or other people that are, you know, involved in it in recovery. And so that has been, I think, fascinating and disappointing. And I still can't figure out how to fix it. I guess that's partly why I'm here. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's not that it doesn't happen. You're not like this outlier, I would imagine, right? Because addiction runs yeah. deep in, yeah. in cultures all over the world. It's just not spoken about, so it's in the shadows. And and for you to start talking about that, and as I was listening to you too, it's like, how did you get to a point to be vulnerable and talk about this stuff? Because 
people don't do it very well. I don't know when people are like, let me volunteer and tell my story without, you know, having done it a lot and feeling comfortable. Because your addiction was in the shadows and controlled as much yeah. as possible. So what helps you? Like, I'm going to just share and, and be vulnerable. I mean, I think I did it um, sort of like piece by piece where I started realizing that it was helping people. So I would do it. And um, like, for example, like, let's say I write like an essay and I would put it up on like medium and I would get responses and then I would like respond back. And then I would talk about it in prison. And then I would kind of talk. We also had formerly incarcerated um, members. And so I would talk about it with them. And so I just slowly kind of kept inching towards it. And I think what I was doing is I think I was sort of like towing the line to see how far I could take it without my husband sort of being like, now we've gone too far because he really didn't like the label of sobriety or recovery. And so I was just sort of like messing with it a bit until um, I think that he had started to develop some other interests like in crypto, for example. And that really was like, okay, I mean, if he can do this sort of like obscure like thing, then maybe I can push it a little bit. And so I did. I pushed it um more and I started being a lot more open. And I had a group of sober girlfriends in New York. And so yeah, and I I really was really happy. Like I sort of was at this like interesting like pinnacle where I like had that life. Like I was living mm-hmm. in New York part time and I was living in Pennsylvania um in a rural area part time and I was married and I was love with my husband and and I was finally doing something that mattered like felt like I just finally was doing something that I would like get emotional about if that even makes sense like I yeah I'm not crying yeah I'm not crying over straightening teeth right like I'm not getting emotional when somebody has a great result and 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 look there are orthodontists that do get emotional when someone has a great result and that's amazing you should definitely be an orthodontist (laughs) that's your calling Uh, yeah, for sure. It's your calling. You want to talk about it at dinner parties. You want to show. I still have friends that'll be like, Listen, I want to show you this uh, picture of a result I had. And so that's great. Uh, but that was the only time I ever had that feeling was when I was working like kind of in the recovery, in the sort of like second chance at life space, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so that's what I was doing. I was, I was like, really just going hard for like five years. I was like, this is amazing. And then, yeah. And then the the rug was pulled out from under me by my husband just picking up one day and leaving. And this was not that long ago. Is that right? Yeah. It was like a little over a year ago. And yeah, it turns out it had a lot to do with like values and sobriety and, and just sort of like I I don't know I changed a lot right like I still think in a sense like I still have the same internal like life but um yeah I guess outwardly I had changed things I wanted to do spend my time doing um way I wanted to spend my money had changed as you know people in recovery you don't actually need a an excuse to to relapse you know it's fucking Monday you know what I mean? Yes. It could, it, there's doesn't, yeah. but when there's an emotional disruption, it, you know, folks are much more, uh, I, I would imagine, vulnerable to relapsing. It's that emotional dysregulation that happens, like, oh my God, yeah. hopelessness. And you were well in your way in recovery. And again, you've been married for 18 years at that point. Is that correct? That's how we were together 18, 18 married years. like 12. Yeah. But that's a long time. You kind of grew up with mm-hmm. each other. Right. And so when that broke, 
What helped you stay in recovery? Because that's a big hit. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to stay sober. I was like, this this is bullshit. Like right? this guy left. Like I became the best version of myself and this guy left. Like saying that like we were no longer compatible type thing. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Right? Like I was really like, and in the shock, it literally happened probably like two, three days before I knew something was odd. And so the shock was so extreme. And, and of course, like I have anxiety. And so um, my anxiety was off the chart, like, off, just like, and I know you, you probably know, like it was like the, the halt triggers. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't eating. So I was hungry. I was, I'm sure I was pretty angry. I was certainly lonely and I couldn't sleep. So I was tired. And so it was like a recipe for me to relapse. Um, and I don't know what kind of stopped me. I was like, this pain is something I only know how to treat with um, drugs and alcohol. Right. I don't have. Yeah. Like I can, I was prepared for like other things. Like I could have handled different things. I could handle the stock market going down. I could handle something happening to one of my dogs. Like I could mm-hmm. handle something happening to a parent. But this was something so like fundamentally, like just so in my life was something that was rock, rock solid. And so I I think the next morning after he left, I was like, I need some help. And so I think I logged into a meeting that a friend of mine had told me about. And I just went to that meeting every day at 8 a.m. Sometimes I would go like twice a day. Um, and that's sort of what I did. And I really, really, really did it one day at a time. And I think when I sort of realized this was not an option, um, to relapse was when, you know, a lot of times on those calls, the majority of the people are in early, early sobriety. And I thought, you idiot, like, what would these people do to have five years of sobriety? You know, what would they do? Like, you have what you worked so hard at this. And, and I knew too, that if I drank again, it it wasn't going to be like a one day thing. It wasn't like, oh, just let me have a bottle of wine and get through this day. Like, I, I knew. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that kind of that, those thoughts, um, yeah, the playing the tape forward and the like, just being so grateful. Right. So connection, right. Super important. Um, And we know connection is the opposite of addiction. Right. And it's very true, which kind of leads us to Everbloom, because that's all about connection. Tell us a little, walk us through about how that evolved and what is it? And why does yeah, it exist? So, yes, I was going to the meetings and um, the meetings were about like 200 to 250 people um, on Zoom and the raise your Zoom hand. I never shared because I didn't, one, I didn't want to take up that space um, from people who were really going through early sobriety. And I was like, my husband's still going to be gone in six months. Like this, you know, these people may not be sober in six months. And so that, uh, the combination of that, a combination of, I didn't want to just vent uh, to the Zoom screen. I didn't want to just say, this is what happened. This is so horrible. Next, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I, I needed feedback. And also I wasn't going to share in front of that many people. Let's just be honest. Like, that, I mean, I'm that's a lot. And that's just, yeah. And so, and, and, you know, it's different people every day. It's a different, you know, assortment. And oh. so I remember a few times I have like, I'm super close with my sister-in-laws and they both, they're both married and divorced from my brother. And, um, they, um, they would say something like, I would say like, when does it get better? Like when, you know, I had all these questions 
And I said, like, am I ever going to be happy again? Is it ever going to not hurt to like see the dent on my ring finger? Is it ever, is that dent ever going to go away? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said they would give me so much feedback. They were like, yes, yes, yes. All these things that like, you are going to be fine. This is how I felt. I'm fine. You're going to be fine. You know, all these things. And I thought, okay, so I need feedback. But what I didn't want to lay on them was the possibility that I could start drinking again. So I hadn't told anyone that I had been thinking about drinking. And so I knew that there was some combination. I was like, I need a sober community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also need consistency. I can't tell my story every week. I can't do it. Like I can't have a different group of people and every week have to be like, and so my husband left and then, you know what I mean? Like I needed some consistency where people could like see my improvement or see my decline. And so, um, so yeah, I went on a trip, um, by myself to Costa Rica, which I thought was a terrible idea, but my sister-in-laws were like, yeah, go, go. You need to go do something. Um, by yourself? Get, out, get out of the house. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. And I went on this retreat and I like, I think I cried the whole way there. I hadn't been on a vacation by myself in like 20 years. Um, cried on the flight. I cried when I got there. The first dinner I went to alone, I was like, this, whose idea was this? This is so bad. Right, I feel this sucks, weird. right? Yeah, this, I just want to be home with my dogs watching like Real Housewives and like zoning out and not confronting my, like how alone I am. Right. And I think I slept for the first time in a while, like that, the first night there. And I woke up and I remember just, I don't know, it's just like I was in this like cloud forest and I just knew, I knew I was going to be okay. Like I just knew that it was going to be rough and I knew that it would probably take a couple of years. And I just sort of had this like acceptance and I thought, but to get through these years, like, what do you need? And I thought, you know, I just need this, a consistent group of like, I don't know, 10 to 15 people. Then we all have something in common in terms of like, we've all gone through a life transition or we're going, we have to rebuild our life. And so I just, I don't know, I started sketching it out. Like, um, I had like a notebook and I started like drawing like circles and I like drew a, like a sobriety circle and I drew all these like spokes coming out of it. And I was like, what kind of different groups could you have? And and I thought, okay, like you could have a life transition group. You could have a parenting group. Like that can at times in your life be the most difficult thing you're going through. Um, you could have early sobriety groups. You could have sober curious groups. And it just kept going on and on. And I was like, maybe there's something here, but I am certainly not in any place to start a business right now. And so I just kept fiddling with it for a couple of months and my sister-in-law was like, this is a good idea. She's a therapist. Um, and she also, my brother relapsed. He had been in AA and we called all, all of his AA friends and they were like, no, there's nothing we can do. Right. Like there's, we can't, it, unless he wants help, there's nothing we can do. And so I think part of his, you know, the reason his relapse lasted also so long was because he, there's so much shame and guilt, right. Associated with relapsing. I think sometimes oh, in yeah. AA and so like not, yeah, I need, we need something else. It has to be a different type of space. Like it's not a program. It's just like a community space. And so, yeah, I just kept playing with it until I could get a little bit more information. I started interviewing people in recovery and asking them like, is this something you would need? Is something that's missing? And 
it seemed like it was a real void in the space. And so what does it look like now? So yeah, it looks alike. And so I, I launched it in January. And what it looks like are small groups. Um, right now, it's all women of, you know, 10 to 15 people. And they are together once a week or twice a week. Um, and they every time they log in, they like know what's been going on in each other's life. Like, no, people will be like, hey, Susan, is your sister out of the hospital? Um, how did you get through that? And so they're so close. I think even closer than I had anticipated um, would be sort of like the outcome. I didn't think people would actually be like offline friends, like texting each other, support, that type of thing. So yeah, the women are just so, so connected to each other and their kind of personal stories. And they know so much about each other and so much about their sobriety struggles. Um, and they're just so supportive. Yeah, in a way I, I just hadn't predicted. I thought it'll just be a safe space space for people to gather and kind of talk and have some consistency, but it's so much turned into be so much more um, than that. And so, yeah, it's amazing to watch. And what makes this unique from like AA? Because there's more selection. People have a little more choice instead of just going to a random meeting and repeating their story. You actually have groups that are specific, right? They they kind of stay with each other. Is that true? Yeah, it's almost like a cohort, right? They just stay with each other. Um, and so because, you know, we've been doing it for about like six months, so they're still together, right? Like, and so they're in the kind of, we have like a zero to six month group. And so they're all still together and they're still figuring it out. Like not all of them have been able to stay sober. Not all of them want to be completely sober, but they're figuring it out together. And that's what's amazing because they'll see, you know, someone try to be sober and then, you know, have like some sort of slip and they'll be like, I don't want that to happen. I want, you know, and so it's just really amazing for them to support each other, see what the other one's going through. Um, and they're just really trying to figure out what they want their relationship with alcohol to be. I think that's and amazing. That is so cool because, as you know, firsthand, going to these different meetings can be terrifying. Um, yeah. Some people have sponsors and they get fired from their sponsor and it, they get unraveled and then, they, you know, it's hard to get back up with that too. So yeah. um, if I, let's just say I'm interested in joining your group, what would that look like for me? If I had specific things like, uh, I don't want to, I did AA and I did SMART, I did all these other things and I just want to try Everbloom, um, what would that look like? Walk me through. Yeah, I mean, for sure, a, a lot of the people um, that I meet in the groups have tried other things mm -hmm. and it's just not for them. And this is the only thing that has worked. And so, yeah, you go to joineverbloom.com, you fill out some information, you can try out a free meeting just to see if the format is something that resonates with you. Not everyone wants to have that sort of active participation. Um, and it really, I would say it like it, it really works when you actively participate. It's not um, sort of a passive recovery. And so, yeah, just show up and be vulnerable and be honest and like help and jump in and someone's having a hard time help. Like give them the best advice, give them the most support you can. And so, yeah, that's what it looks like. Nice. Are there facilitators in there or is it a peer run? How does that work? Yes. Always a recovery coach. And I think that's good. So oh, things kind nice. of like, yeah, they don't go off the rails. And there's also someone there to kind of like guide and say, mm -hmm. you know, what about this? Like, you know, it sounds like, you know, this. And so there's always some sort of 
Now, I wouldn't say necessarily like goal oriented, but we're always like trying to move forward. So we're not getting caught up in past stuff. We're making sure that we're just kind of like look forward looking. Oh, nice. So what is your hope for Everbloom? And, and by the way, it's a beautiful name. I'm just curious where that <laughs> came from, too. Um, yeah, the name, it was just something like I, I love. Like, it's so funny. You know, like there are some words in your life. You're like, I never really used that word. And for some reason, I started like understanding the the secondary meaning of the word evergreen, like when some like evergreen content and evergreen. And I was like, I love that. I love that. And then, yeah, just the idea of blooming. And so it probably has a lot to do sort of what like what I was going through in my life at that exact time. And so, yeah. And so my goal is just I think that it's the type of thing that the the more members we have, the more niche the groups can be. And so, I see. you know, if yeah, we can have, you know, we can just have like a moms of kids zero to 10 group, you know, but the more people we have, I think the, the more niche. So it's like, we have a lot of healthcare workers and so we can have a healthcare workers group. And so I feel like, you know, we could eventually have an attorney's group. We could have anything oh. that people are struggling with. And the more people we have, I think the more specific we can get. I think that because as you know, recovery is pretty personal. There are some common threads. We know that medically, we know that scientifically, yeah. socially, but there are specific needs. Like for you, certain approaches didn't work, right? I mean, you've done AA, you've done all these other kinds of things. And do you attend these groups too yourself? Yeah. I mean, I'm when I facilitate a group, I feel like I'm attending it, if that yeah. makes sense. Uh -huh. um, but eventually, yeah, I will. I will attend like a group just as um, a member because I need it too. And so and I do get a lot out of I get a lot out of the meetings. I get a lot out of just even like talking to you and like sharing my story, like will make me think of things that I'm like, I need to look at that more or, or I'll hear something and be like, I need to. I need to journal about that. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I try to keep a super open mind. I think that's great because that also fosters a degree of creativity, you know, because everybody comes with a different way of looking at what mental health is and to reduce stigma. And as we talked about the cultural impacts and race, gender also, as an Indian woman in a fairly traditional background, well, very traditional background, for women who are listening from traditional backgrounds, whether it's from India, whether it's from, you know, different cultures, what would you share that would have helped you kind of navigate your road to recovery? Because you kind of did this like in pieces and parts and not a lot of guidance, if any. And now you're in this place where people can look to you like, hey, Sonia, as a woman of color who comes from a traditional background, what kind of things should I think about um, differently? What would you share with them? I think I would share that there there is a voice in your head that tells you when you have a problem. And so that voice was there. And I think that sort of like cultural stigma sort of kept me from doing anything about it. And I think that would just be my advice. It's like, listen to the voice, listen to the voice. Like it, and that there are places that you can go like Everbloom or even AA that you can go that destigmatize, you know, addiction. And so you can be surrounded by other people that are going through the same thing. And I think that is the most important thing. And I wish I had done that earlier. I think if I had had look at like Everbloom or any recovery program, it's like a piggy bank. And so 
when I was doing well for five years, I should have been like a depositing in my recovery community piggy bank so that when I had a really tough time, I could like withdraw from it. I should have had a strong sober community. And so, yeah, I think that that's super important. I mean, and and we know stigma runs deep. That's not that's not cured yet. Until that happens, things will still continue to be very challenging, I think, for anyone who is seeking recovery or addiction. Um, for women in particular, like for folks like that look like you, um, are there other specific things that you can share how your value shifted? You're still very much a part of your culture and, you know, pick and choose kind of who you want in your life, what would you share with someone who is Indian and wants recovery? Um, How would you navigate that and kind of how that impacts family? Yeah. I mean, I don't think everyone um, needs to be like out and proud with their recovery like I do. I don't think it's a necessity for long-term sobriety. And I think if that's something people are just um, afraid of is talking to their families and that type of thing about it, then don't tell them just kind of this is a step. This can be part of your life that you are doing, you know, from outside of that sort of box and and that it's worth it to to do it. And just, to, you know, it, it can be like recovery is a really personal thing, too. And so I think establishing a community, maybe even outside of, you know, that family dynamic, then is is super important. Probably healthy. So, yeah, my, yeah, I mean, my parents still don't like even now they're like, what do you do? Like, they don't know. Ellie cares. Like, they don't, they still won't. I think if you asked them, it was Sonia an alcoholic, I think they'd be like, what are you talking about? Oh. Yeah. Or, yeah. Don't look at the other people around you that seem to be drinking that heavily. And it's like, well, if they're doing it, I'm not so bad. And I think for a long time, I was comparing myself to the to those men when I was growing up. And I'm like, I'm not getting in a fight. I'm not peeing with the door open. I'm not, you know, and so I think that that it sets a, a really unreasonable standard for what a problem is. Right, right. And so with all of that, how would you say your recovery has changed over time? Wow. Yeah, I think that... Um, I think the beginning was just about not drinking. And so it was just about physically like restraining myself from drinking and like letting myself be super uncomfortable physically um, and understanding that it would pass. And then I think as time went on, it became, you know, I think there's a part of everyone's recovery that is service, like where it's like in whatever way you do it, you give back. And so whether it's through your own sober community or, you know, part of it, I think, is like you're living authentically, right? And I think that's a huge part of it is like connecting with people and doing for other people. Um, And then I think, yeah, now it's really just an emotional sobriety thing. And so for me, my sobriety now is about kind of establishing, you know, the practices that will keep me from relapsing and kind of like honing them. Um, And also kind of getting to the root of some of the deeper issues. And yeah, after six years of being sober, I'm now getting to the root of some of the deeper issues. And so I think, yeah, I think it, and I think it'll change over the next four, five, six, I think it'll always change. I think that, yeah. 
I really appreciate you saying that because I think some of the folks that I have worked with have gotten burnt out of sobriety, yes. got burnt out of recovery. I, I found that to be like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't learn that in my school about like people yes. burn out, but they do or they get addicted to recovery. It's it's this yes. interesting dynamic. Does that make sense? For sure. I've seen this. It's kind of like, well, also, I think when you're, you're type A or high functioning, you like, I wanted a type A recovery, right? You ah. want to be like, I'm going to read that book. I'm going to do this. And so I've seen that. I've seen that a lot where people are like, well, I just read this book and I read this and I listened to this on Audible and then I listened to these five podcasts and and I do think that you can burn out. And I think, yeah. And I also think, too, I always kind of caution people, like, we're not going to, like, all of a sudden get sober, run a marathon, become vegan. Like, it's not all going to happen at the same time, because I think that is sort of, you know, then you start to see yourself as a failure when you can't accomplish all these things. Um, I think it's really important to be gentle. And even now, I'm pretty... Like during, you know, the divorce and that, you know, hugely emotional time, I was pretty gentle with myself. Um, yeah, I kind of treated myself like I, I had the flu <laughs> once in a while. And that's really, that's a a beautiful thing to say. And it's almost like having grace, right? And having patience, which you weren't trained in your upbringing to have. No, no. Or my husband too. So I remember my ex-husband, but I remember like, after he left, I remember like lying on the couch, like may maybe for an entire day um, and like intermittently like crying and watching like Ozark and then crying. And and I I was beating myself up. I that was not something I was ever allowed to do was just do nothing like that was not like on. Yeah, not acceptable in any way. It was like do something, do something, be productive, produce something. Yeah. And then you didn't do that and you didn't and you found that you could relax and not perform and be perfect. But that's taken time. You know, is that some of the value, yeah. a new value that you've that you've adopted? For sure. Like I think listening because I think, too, when you have an addiction, you ignore your body, um, sure. including like you know, mentally, you ignore it so much. And so I think it takes a long time to kind of get tuned back in to what you're body is saying to you and so I know now it's really interesting I work a lot on on Thursdays and I have a lot I, I run meetings um in the evening and so it goes pretty late and then you know it takes me like an hour to like you know get over a meeting like to kind of process it and so yeah you know what Friday mornings I don't book appointments like I don't book anything I don't book a podcast usually on Friday morning because I just know that one it's like there, there's other times like you, you can schedule things. It doesn't have to be right away. It doesn't have to be today. And so, yeah, I give myself a break on Friday mornings because I know that I need it psychologically. Like I need that. I mean, all of these things that you've talked about are so counterintuitive to your upbringing culturally. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, resilience keeps coming up. Grace keeps coming up. It's like, where the hell did you come from and get all that stuff? You know, because it's yeah. kind of, it doesn't happen. And, and whether you come from a pretty strict traditional upbringing, those things are hard anyway. And as women specifically to be patient yes. and to like, it's okay to not be or do. Yeah. And we talk about it a lot. And in during the meetings, I find, yeah, women are 
doing so many things. They're like, they are organizing every party. They are, you know, organizing entire schedules for like a family of six. And so it is amazing how much we over schedule ourselves. So I always say to people like, what, which of these things do you not have to do? Like, which of these things could you even like outsource? Like, could we outsource that? Is that possible? Like, it, would it be worth it to outsource? I remember weirdly though, when I was still drinking, but I was working like 18 hours a day. And oh on God. Sunday, one Sunday, I found myself like crying in the laundry, like just being like, I can't do this. I can't do it. And so I started dropping my laundry off on the way to work. And it was like $10 for like a pound of laundry, like $5. And I was like, this is life changing. And so I always just like encourage people, like if there's something like, if you hate grocery shopping, then order your groceries. Like if you hate doing this, then, you know, yeah. I have a mobile dog groomer now because I hated taking them to the groomer. I love that. And some of these solutions don't have to be like major, you know, these, no. these are small steps, just kind of like in recovery, just do right size, small steps, and it can yeah. be a revelation. Yeah. And think about it too. I would say too, like, think about the money you're saving from not drinking. Let's spend that oh, on yeah. someone doing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from a financial standpoint, purely, you know, absolutely. And yeah. then medical and all these other things. So I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. What other things would you say to folks of color with some traditional background, other things that they, they can do to help themselves get on the road to recovery? Yeah. I mean, I think that for a lot of people, there's, you know, there's some unlearning to do. And I think that understanding too, that, that a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times the root of addiction is some mental health issue. A lot of times that mental health issue has to do with anxiety that you're sort of self-medicating anxiety. And I think so there has to be a process. Yeah. Of like reparenting yourself, sort of like unlearning that reparenting and saying, okay, it's okay to take a break. It's okay to take a break. And, and also admitting that if you do have a mental health issue that you have to get help. And so I think there are some, like, I'm sure you believe that too, like there are some mental health issues that you need medication for, Absolutely. right? Like you can't, like, I always say it's like, how, how are none of my 52 cousins bipolar? They are. They're just not. It's like, how are none of you? It's same thing. Like we have so many stigmas in Indian culture. It's like, how are none of you gay? You are. Five of you statistically are. Mm -hmm. Let's just come on. Let's figure it out. And so mm -hmm. I think that kind of th those things have been coming up a lot for me lately that when I look at that kind of like broad view of all the Indian people I know, like, why are these few things just missing? It means that we're not identifying them or admitting them. I think that's so well said. And I appreciate that. And, you know, my hope for you, my wish is that, you know, Everbloom continues to grow across the country, across the world. This is an online, is that right? Online yes. support group. So yeah. you can get access um, anywhere you are in the world. Um, how can people actually reach you and, and consider joining one of your groups? Yeah, you can just go to join Everbloom, B-L-U-M-E dot 
com, and then either on any social media, we're either join Everbloom or Everbloom. And so, yeah, come check out a meeting. There's no strings. You don't have to put in a credit card. Just come check out a meeting and see if it's for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. I really appreciate your time here. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.